millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chapter 1. This Land is Not My Land Nearly half the county I grew up in is owned by just 30 landowners. I was raised in Newbury in West Berkshire, a leafy part of the home counties. I always knew it was a well-off area, but only later in life did I discover just how much some of its inhabitants owned. 66,000 people, 40% of the county's population, live in settlements that cover a mere 2.4% of the land. Yet 44% of the county is owned by just 30 individuals and organisations. And the ways in which those landowners have chosen to use their land have impacted profoundly on the lives of everyone else living nearby. To appreciate what that means, let me take you on a tour of the place I called home. I spent much of my childhood outdoors exploring. My parents were teachers at the local comprehensive, and I was lucky enough to grow up in a detached house with a big garden, one that was wild and rambling, full of trees and brambles and corners to hide in. Like Calvin in the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, whose imagination often gets the better of him, I'd often find myself imagining my treehouse to be a fortress, and that our backyard was an entire country. The earth in our garden also seemed to have magical properties. It was both a source of new life, alive with green shoots and shiny beetles, and a window onto the distant past. Once I found a medieval silver penny in our vegetable patch, glistening in the dark soil. Something about that childhood experience of being close to the earth, of having a patch of ground to which I feel a sense of belonging, has stayed with me all my life. I was ten years old when they decided to drive a bypass through nine miles of countryside to the west of Newbury. In the late 1980s, Margaret Thatcher had spoken of her admiration for the great car economy and boasted of delivering the largest road-building programme since the Romans. In pursuit of this goal, the government gouged a motorway cutting through the ancient chalk downland of Twyford Down, and bulldozed hundreds of homes in East London for the M11 Link Road. Now the woods and water meadows of West Berkshire were in the road lobby's sights. To shave a few minutes off motorists' journeys, it was deemed necessary to put a bypass through four sites of special scientific interest. The government had reckoned without a huge outpouring of opposition from local residents and activists from across the country who flocked to Newbury and staged one of the largest environmental protests ever seen in the UK. 
my parents took me on the 8,000-strong march organised by Friends of the Earth along the route of the proposed bypass, snaking past beautiful heathland and through a Civil War battlefield. I remember looking longingly at the protesters' treehouses perched high in the great oaks that were destined to be felled and pleading with Dad to let me go and join them. Maybe when you're older, he'd said. Jim Hindle, one of the protesters who was old enough at the time to go and climb trees, later recounted, The land to be lost to the road was meant to be compensated by the gift of other land elsewhere, but once it was gone, that was that. A new plantation would take years to grow, and could never make up for the loss of ancient woodland or the history that the road would obliterate. Where Hindle camped, The rest of the Snellsmore Reserve backed away over the Lambourne Downs in a primordial soup of ferns and birches and moss. It seemed like another country, stretching away further than we could rightfully imagine, half wild and ancient and vast. Perhaps the potential to halt the road lay in gaining control over the land. A previous plan to put a motorway through Otmore in Oxfordshire had been thwarted by the cunning of local Friends of the Earth members. They had bought a field along the route of the road called Alice's Meadow, a reference to Alice in Wonderland, whose author, Lewis Carroll, had been inspired by the landscape of Otmore. Dividing the field into 3,500 separate parcels, they had sold each one to a different person – This made compulsory purchase by the authorities virtually impossible, since they would have had to do deals with every single one of the landowners. Instead, an alternative route for the road was chosen, and Otmore was saved. Could opponents of the Newbury Bypass count on the support of local landowners in halting the scheme? A young environmentalist, George Monbiot, initially hoped so. A huge swathe of land in the path of the bypass lay in the ownership of Sir Richard Sutton, a wealthy baronet who claims a lineage dating back to the Norman Conquest. As Monbiot later recounted, the Sutton estate, just to the west of Newbury, covers some of the most exalted water meadows in southern England. In 1983, when I was waterkeeper there, the manager told me not to cut too much of the bankside vegetation – The estate was the guardian of the countryside. As such, it had a duty to preserve its ancestral character. Hoping that this sense of noblesse oblige would make Sir Richard an ally against the bypass, Monbiot approached him to make common cause. But then the estate manager published his plans. Claiming that he was powerless to stop the road, he requested that he be allowed to supply the hardcore. He would dig out a further 100 acres of the meadows for gravel. Beside the road, he proposed building 1,600 houses, a hotel, and an 18-hole golf course. As the new bypass was likely to fill up within a few years, he suggested that a second road should also pass through the estate. Other landowners along the route of the road were similarly craven. The Earl of Carnarvon, owner of Highclere Castle to the south of Newbury, made famous as the setting of the series Downton Abbey, told conservationist Charles Clover that he had been behind a bypass for the past forty years, but admitted that he did not know how much his son, Lord Porchester, had received for the sale of the site of a service station on the proposed new bypass. To Clover, The saga of Newbury's bypass is about more than a road. 
It raises questions about whether we place sufficient value on our country's human and natural history. The threat of a road, he felt, has the ability to bring out a love of land in the strangest people, just not, it seemed, in the people who actually owned the land. The defence of the trees fell instead to a ragtag army of courageous commoners, many of whom travelled from far and wide. Their tactics delayed the road for months, costing millions. Police ended up making over 1,000 arrests. Why don't they save their dole money, go to South America and save the rainforests, sneered one local businessman in a letter to the local paper, a copy of which I pasted into my school project on the bypass as an example of the calibre of the debate. I remember my mum shedding tears when we went to see the scene of destruction left by the bulldozers, saying it reminded her of images of deforestation in the Amazon. Ten thousand trees were felled along its route. My tree climbing being strictly limited to trees in our garden, I did what I could. I saved a pine cone from a tree destined for the chop and grew it into our family Christmas tree. The unseen influence of other landowning interests may also have been at play in helping determine the route of the road. When the highways agency and their private contractor, Costain, came to my school to tell us what a great job they were making of the bypass, I remember putting my hand up to ask a question. Why are you building the bypass through all the nature reserves on one side of Newbury, I asked, when you could just build it through the racecourse on the other side of town? I didn't know it at the time, but questioning the sanctity of horse racing in West Berkshire is a bit like doubting the existence of God in the Vatican. Breeding horses is big money here. Newbury Racecourse is one of the country's largest horse racing tracks, and Lambourne, a village to the north of Newbury, is second only to Newmarket for its stud farms. When I was growing up, classmates at school would joke about folks who lived in Lambourne being inbred, they stopped taking the piss when they got to sixth form and started partying. It was some of the Lambourne stable hands with their ready access to horse tranquilizers who could supply the ketamine. Venturing out into horsey territory for Sunday walks, it was always obvious how rich the area was. Colonnaded mansions with sweeping driveways sat among rows of stables and well-manicured paddocks. What I didn't know at the time was that most of the racing studs and surrounding fields were owned offshore, in tax havens, and that many of them also received generous taxpayer-funded farm subsidies. One, Earl's Court Farm Limited, with an estate of 2,600 acres and an address in Bermuda, was handed £304,300 in 2015. The vast majority of this was as a single-area payment – a subsidy calculated on the basis of how much land you own, with few additional strings attached. But when I tried to find who was the ultimate beneficiary of such public largesse, it proved impossible to do so. Combing through a welter of offshore shell companies, the only records I could find indicated that the parent companies were called the Millennium Trust and the Racine Trust – two mysterious organisations with no apparent internet presence and no named directors or owners. Horsiculture takes up a lot of land in West Berkshire, but it's as nothing compared to agriculture. Seventy percent of England is given over to farming, and the rolling downland and river valley of the Kennet is a patchwork of pasture and crops. 
When we think of pressure on the English countryside, we tend to think of encroaching towns and fields being buried under concrete. But it's industrialised farming practices that pose by far the biggest threat to England's green and pleasant land. On this, landowners can have considerable sway, and sometimes for the better. For years, the multinational pesticides manufacturer Bayer had its UK headquarters in Newbury. The weed killers and insect sprays it manufactured were sent out into the surrounding countryside, where farmers and landowners doused their crops with them year after year. Only now are we starting to wake up to the catastrophic effect this chemical inundation has had on ecosystems. One recent study from Germany reports the disappearance of three quarters of all flying insects over the past 27 years. Another study from France has shown that bird populations have fallen by a third in the past decade and a half. There are hardly any insects left. That's the number one problem, observes one scientist. The UK has seen a 56% decline in farm birds since 1970. With industrialised farming and agrochemicals the key culprits, neonicotinoid pesticides in particular have been shown to pose a major risk not just to insect pests but to many other pollinating insects, including honeybees. Bayer, alongside other pesticide manufacturers, has been making them since the 1980s. My parents used to keep bees in woodland belonging to the Sutton estate. I still vividly remember extracting the honey from the big wooden Langsroth hives in our kitchen, spinning the wax-coated frames around in a big barrel while chewing greedily on pieces of sweet honeycomb. But though we could make sure our bee colony had a good supply of food through the winter and kept a watchful eye out for any signs of the bee-harming varroa mite appearing in the hives. There was little we could do to stop surrounding landowners from spraying pesticides on their crops. At least one landowner in the county, however, decided to treat their land differently. Sheep Drove is a 1,800-acre organic farm lying to the north of Lambourne's horse racing studs, owned since 1972 by Peter and Juliet Kindersley. Our original aim was to protect ourselves from the polluting chemicals used by farmers all around us, and recreate the original downland landscape that we fell in love with so many years ago. They write, "We have witnessed the miraculous generosity of nature as the countryside around us has come back to life, and with the return of myriad birds, wild flowers, small mammals, reptiles, and insect life." Land which was turning into an arid prairie has been transformed to a rich tapestry of wildlife. But not all landowners have shared the Kindersley's philosophy. It's taken much campaigning by environmental groups to eventually achieve an EU-wide ban on bee-harming neonicotinoid pesticides in the face of considerable opposition from the National Farmers Union and other landowners' groups. The impending mass extinction of species poses a profound threat to the survival of human civilization. A generation ago, a very different threat loomed over Britain—the spectre of nuclear annihilation. Here too, the decisions of a large landowner in my home county were to have far-reaching repercussions. West Berkshire's recent history is deeply entwined with both the nuclear establishment and anti-nuclear protests. 
Since the 1950s, the village of Aldermaston has been central to Britain's nuclear weapons programme and became the target of the first CND marches towards the end of that decade. Another part of the atomic weapons establishment is based at Burgfield, just down the road. But it was one military site in West Berkshire above all others that came to embody the terrifying logic of the Cold War, the struggle against nuclear weapons and the battle over the land on which they were stationed, Greenham Common. Comprising nearly a thousand acres of woods and open heathland, Greenham Common had been used as a military training ground for centuries, but was only enclosed when it was requisitioned for an airfield during the Second World War. When I visited Greenham in the spring of 2018, the remains of its huge runway could still be discerned amid the spreading sphagnum mosses and prickly gorse bushes that have now colonised it. It was leased by the Air Ministry, a predecessor department to the Ministry of Defence, MOD, to the US Air Force in 1968. Then, in 1980, with Cold War tensions reaching a new peak, Margaret Thatcher agreed to station 96 US nuclear cruise missiles at Greenham Common, making my hometown nuclear strike target number one. The move represented a significant escalation in tactics by the hawkish new US President Ronald Reagan, who had reversed years of détente with the Soviet Union and begun calling it the Evil Empire. Many felt that the MOD and the British state overall had sold out British interests for American ones. The sign at the gate maintained the pretense of RAF ownership, hence British control, notes historian George Mackay. But there is no obligation for the US government to obtain Britain's consent before firing missiles from Greenham Common. Instead of feeling safer under the US nuclear umbrella, the UK was now in the firing line more than ever before. The investigative journalist Duncan Campbell, who revealed many of the government's clandestine plans for nuclear war, noted at the time, cruise missiles may soon be sighted at Greenham Common and Molesworth, also US main bases. The Soviet Union would wish to destroy all these bases with considerable speed. Years later, when I met Campbell in person to interview him, I told him I had grown up in Newbury. Oh dear, he said, shaking his head sadly. Yes, that would have gone quickly. To local residents who had moved to this leafy home county's fastness for peace and quiet, the spectre of nuclear war now loomed terrifyingly large. Greenham Common quickly became a magnet for anti-nuclear protest. In 1981, a group of anti-nuclear protesters called Women for Life on Earth decided to march from Cardiff to Greenham to protest the lunacy of nuclear weapons. Upon their arrival at the base, four of them chained themselves to the fence, while a fifth, Karen Cutler, created a diversion. The lone policeman on guard mistook her and the other protesters, as if playing his part in an unsubtle feminist satire, for the base's cleaners. Anne Pettit, another of the marchers, was awestruck by the potential for a protest camp at Greenham Common. I thought, my God, it's the Forest of Arden, she recalled later, referring to the magical woodland in Shakespeare's As You Like It, where social rules are broken and norms challenged. Somewhere to take to the woods and uphold better values than the corrupt court values. 
Historian Andy Beckett argues that Greenham Common was one of the best places imaginable to stage a confrontation with the overmighty transatlantic power structures that had grown up around British-based nuclear weapons. A great sweeping tabletop of gorse heath and grassland, fringed with deep green stands of birch and bracken, In 1981, it was one of the few charismatic landscapes left in an increasingly suburbanised southeast England. The MOD and US Air Force had now militarised this landscape, sealing it off from the outside world with miles of fencing and barbed wire, but Greenham's enclosure fence was soon to become synonymous with civil disobedience. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On the 12th of December 1982, in an action called Embrace the Base, 30,000 women, including my mum, encircled Greenham Commons perimeter. Others adopted spikier tactics, cutting through the fence with bolt croppers in order to exercise what they argued was their right to walk on common land. A court later found the protesters to be in the right. Since Greenham was indeed a common, they couldn't be stopped from walking on it. But damaging the fence in order to actually get in was still a criminal offence. Even so, the MOD opted to introduce new bylaws covering Greenham to ensure future trespassers could be sentenced harshly. The Greenham Women's Peace Camp maintained a permanent presence at the base for nearly two decades, becoming a rallying point for both anti-nuclear and feminist campaigners. Eventually, with the sudden end of the Cold War, the cruise missiles left Greenham, and the MOD deemed the site surplus to requirements. It was sold to the local council and a charitable trust, who decided to finally open up the common again. The perimeter fence was torn down, grazing cattle returned, and common access rights restored. Greenham Air Base's huge runways were broken up, although this symbolic triumph also had a downside. 
most of the concrete was used to help build the Newbury Bypass. Only the colossal earthen bunkers that had housed the cruise missiles remain standing today. On my visit to Greenham Common one spring evening, I stared across the heath at the brooding bulk of the missile silos. Their silhouettes resembled a cross between aircraft hangars and Bronze Age burial mounds. But whereas the tumuli that dot Berkshire's chalk downlands were built to remember the dead as they passed into the afterlife, these structures seemed to me to be far more nihilistic, monuments to mutually assured destruction. Up close, the silos appeared even more malevolent, still shrouded by three lines of fencing, some of it topped by razor wire. They squatted, ziggurats of grassed-over concrete with thick bulkhead doors, defended by menacing MOD signs. This is a prohibited place within the meaning of the Official Secrets Act, read one. Unauthorised persons entering this area may be arrested and prosecuted. I patrolled the perimeter of the bunkers, thinking about the peace protesters who'd formed a situationist right during the Vietnam War to levitate the Pentagon. Here and there, I was gratified to see, were signs of where the Greenham women had graffitied slogans onto the concrete fence posts and cut holes in the fencing. To my disappointment, all of them had been repaired, making easy access to the site impossible. But nature is now slowly doing the job once performed by the protesters. In one place, a silver birch had grown through and around the fence and was tearing it apart. It's not just the military who enclose common land and public space, of course. In West Berkshire, as elsewhere across the country, the main culprits are big private landowners. I saw this plainly when I decided to return to the county for a few days hiking one winter. The Berkshire countryside, beautiful though it is, is also stuffed full of private keep-out signs, letting errant commoners know that the real owners of the landscape would rather you weren't in it. In some places, the influence of big estates permeates entire villages, a reminder that for a sizeable slice of rural England, feudalism has never died. That much seemed obvious when one freezing December afternoon I walked into the tiny village of Yattenden on the edge of the Yattenden estate. Acquired by the media mogul Baron Eilif in the 1920s, the 8,295-acre estate has reshaped the area's countryside with its vast conifer plantations. It sells 80,000 Christmas trees each festive season. As I skirted around iced puddles, I noticed something about the village. Everything looked the same. All the doors, gates and windowsills in Yattenden were painted in the estate's official dark green, as uniform as the serried ranks of saplings planted in the surrounding fields. Even the telephone box, that staple of quaint old English villages, maintained for tourist selfies long after the landline has been ripped out by vandals, was Yattenden green, rather than the traditional red. The village's notice board, proudly displaying a plaque for the award of best-kept village of the year 1974, presented neatly typed minutes from the latest parish council meeting. Out of the grand total of five attendees they recorded, one had been a representative of the Yattenden estate. It was hard to shake the sense that, behind the scenes, order was being maintained by some decorous yet shadowy patrician operating out of the big house on the hill, like something out of the movie Hot Fuzz. 
But it isn't merely the colour scheme of villages that landowners have sway over. They also control access to large swathes of countryside. A right to roam was established by the Countryside and Rights of Way Act in the year 2000, but open access land still only makes up around 10% of England and Wales, a far cry from the situation in Scotland, where the right to roam is now established as the default, and much of that is mountain and moorland. Down south, the countryside is far less open to ramblers. Less than 1.5% of West Berkshire, for example, is covered, and many of its glorious woodlands remain inaccessible to the large population of London and the Thames Valley, notes Marion Shord, whose tireless campaigning helped bring about right to Rome. These tiny scraps of accessible woods include Snellsmore Common and Penwood, both of which were cut through by the Newbury Bypass, and parts of Greenham Common, which had been closed off to the public for decades because of the airbase. So even these fragments of open-access land have been shut off or defiled by some of the county's major landowners. The efforts of large landowners to keep people off their estates have, however, proved their undoing when it comes to uncovering what they own. I was inspired to try to map who owned my home county by the work of John McEwen, who pioneered studies of Scottish land ownership in the 1970s. McEwen set out to find who owned his native Perthshire, but it ended up taking him four years to map just the one county. Fortunately, I discovered a shortcut, and it was all thanks to the territorial behaviour of the landowners themselves. Under an obscure clause, Section 31, Paragraph 6 of the otherwise extremely boring Highways Act 1980, landowners can prevent new public rights of way from being established across their land by lodging a statement with the local authority. The deposited statements usually last for 20 years, meaning that any public use of the land during this period will not then count towards determining new rights of way. But to protect their interests in this fashion, landowners also have to submit a map delineating the boundaries of their estates. This is then usually published by the council online, or is accessible under the Freedom of Information Act. Possessive landowners are thus hoist by their own petard. It was this documentation that I was able to draw upon to discover who owns my home county. West Berkshire Council, it turned out, had a remarkably complete set of landowner deposits. I requested they send me their maps in a digital format to make analysis easier. Combining these with information from a number of other sources, the jigsaw began to fit together. The results astonished me. It was now that I discovered that almost half the county was owned by just 30 landowners. Their identities offer a telling insight into the landowning elite of modern England. Baronial estates owned by the same aristocratic families for centuries sit next to stately piles snapped up by newly moneyed businessmen, and it is nearly always men. Organic farms and horse-racing studs registered in the Cayman Islands. The aforementioned newspaper magnate, Baron Eilif, and property mogul Sir Richard Sutton jostle for landowning supremacy with H&M chairman Stefan Persson, Formula One racing legend Frank Williams, and three scions of the wealthy Astor family. But the single biggest landowner in West Berkshire is Richard Benyon, MP. Benyon is the inheritor of the 12,000-acre Englefield estate, The palatial, turreted Englefield house has belonged to his family since the 18th century. 
Today, Benyon is the richest MP in Parliament, with an estimated fortune of £110 million. One tranche of this comes from the East India Company, another stems from property, through the development of de Beauvoir Town in the London borough of Hackney in the 19th century. Richard Benyon still owns de Beauvoir today, via the Englefield Estate Trust Corporation, with the Berkshire connection commemorated in the name of Englefield Road. In 2014, his company courted controversy when it took a minority stake in a consortium that bought the new era housing estate in Hoxton. The consortium threatened to hike rents on the estate, leading Hackney Council to warn of enforced homelessness for nearly half of the 93 households living there. When the community rallied in protest and were joined by comedian-turned-activist Russell Brand, Benyon's firm was forced to back down and sell its stake. A third income stream flows from farming. In 2017, Benyon's Berkshire estate pocketed £278,180 in farm subsidies, courtesy of the taxpayer. It was through enclosure that the Englefield estate grew to be so large and so wealthy. To this day, a large expanse of woodland at Englefield is called Benyon's Enclosure, denoting a former common enclosed by the MP's ancestor. His deer park was created 200 years ago by literally moving a village to make way for it. The long flint wall that surrounds Englefield today signals a dark history. People's homes had been demolished to make way for this private pleasure ground. As the poet Oliver Goldsmith wrote in 1770 in protest at widespread enclosure, "'Ill fares the land to hastening ills a prey,' where wealth accumulates and men decay. But more important than Benyon's sheer wealth is the example he provides of the continuing political influence of landowners. Elected to Parliament in 2005, his political pedigree is impeccable. His father was Conservative MP for Buckingham and Milton Keynes, and his great-great-grandfather was the Conservative Prime Minister Robert Cecil, the third Marquess of Salisbury. The estate's paint scheme, perhaps by coincidence, is of deepest blue. In 2012, shortly after Benyon became a junior environment minister in David Cameron's government, the gravel quarrying company operating on his estate applied to extend its operations into Benyon's enclosure. Under the plans, the quarry would expand to cover 217 acres, extracting 200,000 tonnes of sand and gravel annually. The existing quarry had already wrecked a patch of land called Burnt Common. I visited it one summer. The common looked like the surface of the moon, pockmarked with pits that had filled with water. Despite Burnt Common being marked as open-access land on Ordnance Survey maps, a barbed wire fence had been erected around it, with signs reading, Danger! Deep Water! Keep Out! The local wildlife trust protested that the new gravel extraction plans would lead to the felling of trees, the destruction of ancient woodland and the permanent loss of heathland. As the minister then responsible for wildlife and biodiversity, you might have thought Benyon would have abandoned such plans out of sheer embarrassment, but he pressed on. This wasn't the only time Benyon's landed interests appeared to clash with his ministerial jurisdiction – the MP also owns an 8,000-acre grouse moor in Scotland and runs a pheasant shoot at Englefield. 
coincidentally or not, as wildlife minister, he refused to make it a criminal offence to possess the poison carbofurin, which is used by some gamekeepers to kill birds of prey when they are suspected of predating on game birds. A second incident during Benyon's ministerial tenure compounded the suspicions of his detractors. Walshaw Moor, a large grouse-shooting estate near Hebden Bridge, owned by wealthy businessman Richard Bannister, was in the process of being prosecuted by the regulator Natural England for damaging protected blanket bog habitat after its grouse-moor management regime had intensified. Then, suddenly and mysteriously, the case was dropped. No explanation was ever offered by Natural England or DEFRA as to why they had abandoned legal proceedings, and Benyon refused to give a straight answer when questioned. Was this another instance of the landed classes coming to a gentleman's agreement behind closed doors? Even if Benyon had recused himself from such ministerial decisions, what does it say about prospects for meritocracy and democracy in England today, when constituencies can still end up being represented by the local lords of the manor? Benyon may stand out for the sheer scale of his estates, but he isn't the only sitting MP to be drawn from the ranks of the landed gentry. Geoffrey Clifton Brown MP, for example, owns the East Beckham estate in Norfolk, for which his estate company received £102,566 in farm subsidies in 2017. Sir Henry Bellingham MP owns land in his seat near the Queen's estate at Sandringham, and the MP for South Dorset is Richard Drax, or Richard Grosvenor Plunkett Earnley Earl Drax, to give him his full quadruple-barrelled surname, owner of 7,000 acres of his constituency, bounded by the longest wall in England. Many MPs nowadays, too, are landlords with rental property portfolios, as the Parliamentary Register of Interests attests. Nor is the level of land ownership concentration in my home county an anomaly. England as a whole belongs to a tiny number of people and organisations. Just 36,000 landowners, a mere 0.06% of the population, own half of the rural land of England and Wales, according to the County Land and Business Association, who represent the land lobby in Westminster. That's an extraordinary concentration of land in the hands of so few. That concentration of ownership is visible in the landscape itself, once you start looking for them, it becomes possible to discern patterns of land ownership, like invisible ley lines stretching out over the countryside. A hedgerow is no longer a simple tangle of hawthorn to keep out livestock, but a territorial boundary. A set of gateposts, previously remarkable only for the carved eagles perching atop them, takes on a new significance as a display of might. Get off my land! To see the world through the lens of land ownership is to survey a landscape of power. Many of England's largest landowners have acquired their land through inheritance, an inheritance that has often been built on the back of conquest and enclosure, and landowners possess great power over how their land is used, for good or ill. Ill fares the land indeed. While our last wild habitats face collapse, many landowners continue to turn their land into chemical deserts or flog it off for development, traditional concepts of stewardship seemingly crushed by the lure of pound signs. 
In our cities, urban space is treated by landowners as an investment opportunity, with homes transformed into assets rather than being places to live in. Urban land is too often wasted, with properties left empty and vacant sites kept as land banks as owners wait for their value to climb still higher before cashing them in. Shadowy offshore firms swallow taxpayers' money to run horse-racing studs, and lords of the manor are elected to Parliament. Worst of all, the vast majority of people living in England today remain as landless as they have always been. I belong to England. I love its countryside and history. But does any of it really belong to me? Ramblers and environmental activists, when they gather together around campfires, often sing the songs of the American folk musician Woody Guthrie. They console themselves with the heartwarming lyrics of his most famous piece, a paean to nationhood, land and belonging. This land is my land, this land is your land. But it isn't true. This land does not belong to you or me.